So anyway, we want to finish up. We, we were looking at verses 14 to 18, but we didn't get any further than uh, 15. Uh, and, so that, and that was point one in my notes. And it wasn't my fault, it was yours. So I feel just fine about it. So anyway, let's pray and then we'll look at these verses again. Father, we thank you for your love and your pursuit, your compassion. We thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, in all of that, we thank you that you do not lessen the demand that you have placed on us, created us for, but you've actually gone and fulfilled, lived that very demand. And so it's with that reality we come together, Lord, to look at your word with expectation of all that you are in Christ, asking for your wisdom to listen to you, that you be honored and glorified. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verses 14 to 18. Again, we'll read it, and I'll just review real quick, real quick, what uh, we talked about a few weeks ago, and then we'll look at the rest of the passage, Lord willing. Verse 14, now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. So we were talking how the, the, the Pharisees were uh, listening to what Jesus had been preaching, which is all kind of summed up in the last, uh, in, in verse 13, right at the end of it, it says, you cannot serve God and wealth. And we were just looking at and making the observation that the, the Pharisees are listening to what he's saying. They saw uh, wealth as being a blessing or a reward for righteous living, uh, completely ignoring the fact that Scripture is full of those who were righteous and didn't have a lot, and the opposite, those who had a lot and were not righteous. But in, in doing so, he, he talks about their love for money. And he's, and that it was actually kind of, not kind of, it was, it was a worship of theirs. They were scoffing at Jesus, which meant, meant they were ridiculing him. They were contemptuous toward him. And then we went on and saw that they were, Jesus pointed out that they were self-justifying. So the, the basis of their justification was, was themselves. And we spent a lot of time talking about that. So now, what I'd like for us to do is we'll move on to the next point, which is found in verses 16 to 17. And we see that the Pharisees, Jesus explaining to them that they've just completely missed out on the fulfillment of the law, as found in verses 16 and 17. First of all, the beginning of verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, the, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Well, what exactly was proclaimed? Well, we're, we know 
Jesus talks about this in chapter 24 and verse 27, which we're going to go to at the end of the class. Also in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, which Charlie's taken us through, and we'll look at that verse again in a second. But specifically, I would like for us to, and I have it up on the screen, from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 all the way to 26, it reads like this, but by faith, Moses, so we know that this, this is the chapter in Hebrews that's known as the, the Hall of Faith. And what's interesting to me is that all of these saints that are listed are Old Testament characters, not New Testament. So why would we call them saints? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I really find this interesting that the the faith of Moses was a faith toward Messiah in Christ. And I think it, you know, put that together with Jesus saying that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. We know that the Bible, every book of the Bible, points us to Christ. And so the law and the prophets, this is the purpose of them. You know, you, you, you study through the Old Testament and you find there, oh my goodness, sometimes you, you see pictures of Christ in the tabernacle, you know, all the way through from the moment you walk in and see the, 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 the bronze altar, all the way through the bronze laver and the table of showbread and the, the altar of incense and the, uh, the, the um, what did I miss in there? There's, there's one more. What did I skip? The, 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 the golden lampstand. Thanks. Did I say that? No, okay. Then there's the veil. And oh, which Hebrews 11, our, our 10 tells us that, you know, is his body. It's a picture of his body. You go in and you see the, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you see the Ten Commandments. You see the, um, the, the, the manna and Aaron's rod. On top of that, the mercy seat. You know, you go all the way through and there's just picture after picture after picture after picture of Christ. And then also in the Old Testament, we actually see Christ. You know, he shows up to tell Joshua just what he needs to do with Jericho. Isaiah 53. We see, yeah. You know, all throughout. You know, you, you just go, keep going and keep going and keep going. We see in the, um, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, oh my goodness, we threw three in, but there's four. And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. You know, you keep going and we find that Christ is throughout the Old Testament. And then in our verse there, in verse 16, he goes on and he says this, Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And I think of Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What, what, what's he getting at? 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. I, I teach the, the book of Hebrews at least um, three times a year and at uh, different torchbearer schools. And every time I get to chapter 8, <laughs> I make the statement that, you know, as a teacher, I wish every book of the Bible had this statement, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point of what was, has been said is this. <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that would speed things up a little bit. But what I want to get at, and he, and he goes on, and he's going to review what he has said so far, and what he said so far is Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any other good thing. And as you look at the good things he points out, you'll find that he's saying Jesus is better than any other good thing that God has given us. And so often that's what we can do. We can take these good things from God, and we put them in the place of Christ. And instead of seeing that this is the result of faith in Christ... Uh, so then with that, we come to verse 7, and he says this, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Oh, wait a minute. If the first covenant points us to Christ, then what's wrong with the first covenant? For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made, with their fathers. No, it's different from the first. Well, why does it have to be different? What's wrong with the first? If this points us to Jesus, what's wrong with it? On the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Now we see what the problem is with the, the old covenant. Now, covenant is an agreement between two parties. And we find out that the problem is not the law itself. But it says, for they did not continue in my covenant. We find out that the problem with the old covenant is me. I can't keep it. The old covenant is a picture of Christ. And the problem with the old covenant is me. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. So, verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now see the difference now. The problem with the old covenant is me. Now look at the difference in the new covenant. Look at how it, you know, repetition equals emphasis. Look how it's repeated. I will. See, the problem with the old is me. But now here comes the new. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he had said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever has become obsolete is growing old is ready and ready to disappear. The old, what see, the old is dependent upon me. He's done with that. And now comes the new, which is completely dependent upon him, what he does. <clears throat> Any thoughts with that before I go on? That's a scary question to ask this class. <laughs> okay, going once. I, I believe that, yes, I, I believe that's the realization of it, yeah. 
It, it, it's coming into play. Uh, it, well, I, I don't want to jump on a stump with that, but you just about got me there. But that's, <laughs> I think it is. Okay, now, then comes a statement in our passage that causes little confusion among um, both translators and theologians, but I, and it's, it's worth pointing out, but I don't think it's worth getting stuck in because I think the context is very clear and helpful. So uh, we move on then to the last part of verse 16, which says, and everyone is forcing his way into it. What does that mean? This the, 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 the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God is now being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's, it is a little difficult to, to know exactly I mean, we, I, I have my opinion on it, but I can't be dogmatic about it. Some believe that he's referring to a, a voluntary, a, 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 not a voluntary, a violent, a violent forcing and fighting against Christ to enter the kingdom of God. Others believe it to be more describing this enthusiastic um, determination to enter into it. Either way, I think from the context, it's clear that what Christ is getting at is that the Pharisees were missing the preaching of the gospel that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, not in their self-righteous works. The victory of Christ is certain. Therefore, fighting against him is useless. There's passages, familiar passages to us, like Romans chapter 7 Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into the bondage of sin. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Hebrews 11 refers to the, the fleshing out of that. That we, we're the problem. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, uh, 8. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Verse 21, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is a, there, there is a battle that goes on. But we find that Jesus is the certainty of this victory, the reality of our victory. Hebrews 1, verse 3, And he, being Jesus, is the radiance of his, being God, glory. And the exact, not like, 
but the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of God's power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having made purifications of sin, he sits down because he's finished with the sin. And what he's finished with, you and I, have no right to be digging up and dealing with again. He sits down where? At the right hand of God, the very place of authority and power. Colossians 2.10, he is the head of all rule and authority. The victory of Christ is certain. Therefore, fighting against him, struggling against him, is useless. Once had a student, I was uh, teaching up in Colorado, and uh, had a student come to me. He was pretty frustrated with me. And he says, are you saying that I cannot do good? And he specifically was talking about the good that we were looking at going through the book of Hebrews. And I said, yeah, that's right. You can't. He said, yes, I can. I said, really? He says, yes, I can. Well, tell me what you're talking about. And he went on to talk about how he, you know, he lives a good life. I said, okay, well, I don't, I don't disagree with that. I, I tell people when I give my testimony that I am living proof that a person can be good can be really good, but just as miserable as any unsaved person. Is that the good that we're talking about? I tried to explain to him that his good was not the good. His good that he's proclaiming, that he's depending on, is not the good that he was created for or saved for. What do I mean by that? Well, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Titus chapter 2, 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then finally John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. When um, I was in high school, uh, I had a red Capri, Mercury Capri. Now, a lot of you probably don't know what that means. Some of you remember. It was a car that was made by Ford, but without the Ford name on it, so it had Mercury, and because it was a Mercury, they couldn't put Mustang on it, so they put Capri on it. Made it look a little different in some places, in my opinion, looked better. I really liked that car. My brother can tell you the, the long story about it, how it ended up looking like this, but I ended up having black stripes painted onto it, and it was, uh, it, it was just a, a really, it was a neat paint job on the thing. I really liked the car. Now, it didn't run that great, even though it was new. It was a year old when I got it, and then years later I found out why it didn't. It's because the owner before me, remember when regular gas meant regular? You know, not regular unleaded. 
but real gas, remember real gas? Anyway, uh, the owner before me was putting that into the car when it was supposed to be unleaded, so he plugged up the catalytic converter, and not only did it have one, it had two, so he plugged up both of them. And it wasn't until we were living in Canada that I found out why it was such a problem, and the mechanic came to me, and back then, Canada did not have anywhere near the pollution control that we, have, we had. Now they have just as much, if not more, than us. But I remember all the mechanics standing around the motor. They couldn't believe all the junk that was in that under the hood. And they said, man, how do you work on this car? And I said, you're going to tell me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And they called me up and they said, hey, we found out what the problem is. I said, really? I said, yeah, you have two plugged catalytic converters. So those of you who know anything about cars, you know what they probably did since there was no pollution control. They just cut those suckers out of there. And that car ran incredible <laughs> for one day. And then I sold it. <laughs> I loved that car. It was my red Capri. When I was a senior, this sophomore showed up in a brand new red Mustang. And I remember looking at her thinking, how could you do this? I drew a lot of identity from that car that was a wannabe Mustang, and then this girl that I knew showed up with a real Mustang. It was just plain red, didn't have any stripes on it. It was just a red Mustang. But I remember when she showed up, everybody went, whoa! And I went, what are you talking about, man? Look at mine. It looked good, even flashier than her Mustang, but it wasn't a Mustang just a cheap imitation of the Mustang. <clears throat> I think so often, I know I battle with this, we get caught up with the cheap imitation of God's good in Christ. We can make it look like it. We can, a lot of ways, make it flashier. But it's just an imitation. And sooner or later, the real will show up and will be exposed. To try and force our way into the kingdom, even to try to force our way into, as believers, living the kingdom, will eventually be exposed. It's, it's useless. Any thoughts before we go on to verse 18? Then we'll jump back to 17. I just, I think you've kind of already said this, but it's kind of another way of saying it. I find it interesting that talking about the kingdom of God and talking to these Pharisees who their identity was in the kingdom, the, the, the physical kingdom of Israel. Mm -hmm. That was what they were seeking, and that's what we see throughout the Gospels that, that his disciples were seeking yeah. You're going to take over, right? Yeah. And he's saying, no, this is a spiritual kingdom. And that's what they tripped over. The fact that this, you know, this, the physical kingdom doesn't really matter anymore. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea of that's what was preached up until John. John came, everything changed. And now we're, we're ready to, it's all been pointing that direction, but the focus has always been for the Israelites, their, their focus was on the kingdom, on the Davidic kingdom, and when David's back on his throne, but they're still thinking physical. 
not the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, David's on the throne. That's Christ. Yeah. You know, they weren't prepared for that. Yeah, uh, Warren Wearsby points out, he, he likes to describe when Jesus, and we're going to look at the verse at the end, but when he talks with his disciples and takes, takes them through the Old Testament and shows them, you know, this is about me, uh, Wearsby says that was a Bible conference. And he says, what a conference that would have been as, as Jesus is showing them, this, you, you're, you've missed the point of this. This is about me. Kevin, did your hand come up? Yeah, I find it very interesting, Kelly, that this, this section follows what is kind of a confusing story that Jesus is telling about a manager that is a poor manager. Yeah. That is not doing the right things. But yet, the manager is, uh, is um, commended. Yeah. Right, yeah. What's the word you said, Jeff? Commended. Commended for giving away the stuff yeah. of the owner. And then this story follows. And they're sitting there scoffing. And so I think that it's I think that what I see in that is that the point is that the law is not something that can be kept. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And and that I think is the explanation of these poor managers. Yeah, and that, the, and that the goal isn't to keep the law, right. but to recognize that you can't keep the law, right? And to respond appropriately to the things that are God's, mm-hmm. you know, and and accept. And I think that's the explanation of the of the part about the, you know, the divorce, you know, that you can't divorce that the law is still valid yep. and required, and that there still has to be law. Yep. You know, and you can't just ignore that. I, I find that whole thing very interesting in this context. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up because we do need to see it in the context, and it really helps. It really helps, you know, when, when, we, when we do that, when we look within the context of what's going on. Um, so let, let's go on to verse 18. With, you know, uh, Kevin mentioning the, the whole verse on divorce, you know, why is this here? What, you know, well, he's given an example of the, the, just the self-justifying Pharisees. They're not keeping the law that they proclaim that they're keeping. And so, the, you know, verse very clear, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced for a hu- for, uh, from a husband commits adultery. You know, Charlie, when he preached on this topic a few weeks ago, he was picking on me in front of everybody. He wanted me to cover it. And I thought, well, why should I cover it if you're gonna? Then I can just read it and move on. And just tell you, listen to his sermon. No. uh, I've got all these cross-references in here, and I just think it's really interesting when you read these cross-references, why is there even a debate on this? I know why. (laughs) And, you know, like, if, if you want some of them, I'll get Mark chapter 10, verses 11 to 12. I mean, that one, my goodness. And, and then Charlie, you know, he took us through Matthew. I have Matthew 5.32. There's 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. Matthew 19, I think is what Charlie preached on a couple of weeks ago, isn't it, Charlie? Yeah, 19, verses 3 to 9. But what, what does he get? Why would he bring this up now? 
with what he's been talking about, with this, you know, you know, being, you know, this worship of, of money. And I, I just went ahead and wrote it out. Martin says this, some Pharisees took a loose view of divorce. It was acknowledged that a man should not commit adultery. But if a man wanted another woman, many of the Pharisees condoned divorcing his present wife for no good reason and marrying the desired woman. In this way, they thought adultery did not take place. Moreover, as Jesus pointed out, this was a perfect example of justifying themselves in the eyes of men, but not being justified before God. The religious leaders were not actually living according to the law. Jesus pointed out the importance of the law in verse 17, which showed the people that they should the people should live by it. So in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So he's you know, just simply saying, you know, here you are proclaiming that you're keeping the law. Well, here's the law. And you're not keeping it. Instead, you're, you're doing gymnastics. This is what we're guilty of today as well. You're doing these gymnastics to get around it and justify this. If yes, go ahead. Yes, yeah, same thing with abortion. And there's a lot of Christians that are doing that now. And I, I've been made aware of it the last you know few weeks. Just how many Christians, you know, they're just so upset. You know, social media can be a good thing, can be a horrible thing, but it for sure can be an interesting thing. And there's a lot of people who proclaim Christ, who are just irate over this decision. How, how can... What do you mean? And so simply, they just ignore things. Like um, Psalm... Uh, which one is it? Uh, oh, thank you. I kept thinking 193, but no. 139. You know, it speaks of his very thought of our unformed being. How can we do that? And, and so, you know, if, if man cannot live according to, if he can't find security in his own good effort, then what is man's hope in being justified? In verse 15, Jesus says, then he says, you are those who justify yourselves. And I, you know, growing up, I, I just can't tell you how many times I've heard from believers, you know, try harder. Yeah, so, so, Kelly, I kind of see this verse 18 as explaining verse 17 to a degree. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you can't divorce the law and marry grace. You can't forget the law. That's kind of the way yeah. I understand that. that yeah. That it's not so much about a, a, an example of, of a case where they're violating the law, but really an explanation that you can't just forget the law as if it never existed. I agree. God is unchanging. God is, right. you know, the same God. It, the, the penalty for sin needs to be paid. It's not something that can be paid by humanity, which is evidenced by the story of the manager 
you know, mm -hmm. in the case before. It's not something, it still needs to be paid. You know, and I guess that's the way I see the whole reference to adultery is kind of an explanation of, you can't just forget this. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Divorce is divorce. Yeah, I, I've, I've referenced this before here, I think, but I, I know a man who was a pastor who was not qualified to be a pastor and because of this very, this very thing, divorce, remarriage. And what was interesting is that he didn't deny that he was not qualified. So his justification for being a pastor was this, I am saved by grace. And I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, grace is not the freedom to live the way we want. It is, grace is the enabling to live the way we were created. It is, it, it, it is that indwelling of his life, once again, which is the, you know, Paul says, I strive, I labor according to his power which mightily works within me. And so it, this, is, this is what I, I see the same as, as what you're bringing up, Kevin. This, listen, he says, um, in verse, the, the, he goes on now, again, looking at the context, he goes on, he tells the story of the, the rich man and Lazarus. And, you know, it's a familiar story. We know that, that Lazarus is, is the poor, and he's at the gate. He longs to be able to eat from the rich man's table, the crumbs that fall off of it. He ends up dying, being brought to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man dies, and, and, and he's, you know, a part, he's, he's separated by the great schism. Schism. Oh, I always have a heart. Schism. Big gulf between them. <laughs> and he, you know, he longs for, you know, some relief. Send Lazarus over. Abraham says, no, can't do that. He said, well, then send, send, send Lazarus to my brothers and let them know how bad this is so they don't do it. And then the response that Abraham has in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Jesus is saying this, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And Jesus says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Which is interesting because he wrote Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when they said, let's kill him. Hmm. And Caiaphas says, you know, you guys don't even realize that one man should die for the whole. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so. Yeah, how many times that comes up? Yeah, Noah? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't remember what I said. Yeah, I, I've heard, yeah, throughout my life. And, and as a young man was, was greatly influenced by this teaching to try harder. Try harder to be like Jesus. Try harder to, to live. And, and I was even looking at some websites uh, just uh, this morning, just thinking through this, you know, different ministries. And there are so many ministries that claim to be Christ-centered to the point that I, I think it's become a, a catchphrase in Christendom. We want to be Christ-centered. And then you go on and you read about what they're talking about, and that basically that's it. That's all they're talking about. It's just Christ-centered, and then they go on and describe, 
you know, here's all these truths. Now we got to do this. Got to try hard. Had a had a, a man one time. He was the, he was the head of a seminary. He was the founder and the head of the seminary. He had come to to do a, to lead a conference in the church that I was an associate pastor in. And so he was talking about evangelism. And his main point, his that he just kept stressing with us, you do this, you do this. And you know, and you know, what what I have found to be interesting. And the opportunities I've had to, to preach in other churches and teach at other schools, that when you preach Christ, the true believer responds to this. They are so drawn to this. They are so kept, though they often do not understand what you're talking about. They don't know why they're drawn to this, but they're drawn to this. I had, you know, the same was true for me for years. When I would hear this, I was so drawn. But I can remember actually sitting and listening to men like Major Thomas. I actually remember sitting and listening to him one time when I was 12 years old and having the thought, this is so good, but why is it so good? He's talking about the same God, same Jesus, and he's reading from the same Bible. I had the exact same thought as a student at his hill. Spring term came around. I was sitting in the back, which is where I always sit, and I remember looking and listening to the teacher and having the exact same thought. This is so good, but why is it so good? Same God, same Jesus even reading from the same version of the Bible I use now. I remember Major Thomas, I remember when I was a student, it was the same thoughts that I had. How do you do this? And he would say, it's impossible for you to live a Christian life. You can't do it. Yeah. Kevin? So it's, it's interesting, if you look at this story in Luke, at the beginning of 16, you know, it's about this manager. To me, it's almost like the whole story is about stop trying harder to be a better manager. Instead, recognize that everything is God's that you've been given and be generous with it. Mm -hmm. Because there's no point in trying harder. You're not successful. You're not going to be successful. And to Jeff's point, he's commended for giving stuff away rather than trying to be a better manager or fix the situation. Mm. Just recognize that you can't do it. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Which is odd because it doesn't seem like that should be the way the owner should respond. Yeah. Right? I was, uh, once had a student come up to me, and, and this was a student that was a leader in the student body. He was well-liked. Um, he, was, he was somebody that other people very much would want to be like. He came up to me just beside himself, saying, Kelly, we have to talk now. So we go to my office, and we sit down. Before he was sitting, he was just bawling. And I can't, I can't even imitate it. It was like a gut-wrenching, just cry. And he said, I can't take this anymore. I looked at him and said, what are you talking about? He says, everybody thinks I've got my life together. Everybody thinks that I'm, I'm perfect. People want to be like me. And he says, I'm done with this. I, I am a mess. And then he said this, and I thought it was really interesting to hear a Christian say this. I need Jesus. What a great place for us to arrive at. I need need Jesus. Once I was uh, uh, officiating a wedding uh, from some alumni, and there were several alumni in the wedding. Um, one fella was attending a Bible college at the time, and he was, uh, I walked up to him at the serving line at the rehearsal dinner, and I said, how you doing? And he looked at me and he says, Kelly, I, I'm just so beat up and heavy. 
So what, what do you mean? What's going on? And, and this was another student who was just a leader in the student body, strong believer. And he started to tell me about well, what was going on on the campus of this, the Bible college he was attending. And there was such a push uh, among the faculty and student body for people to accept uh, reform teaching. And I said, oh, that. He goes, no, Kelly, you don't get it. Everybody on campus has to decide where they stand on this. And I said, what do you mean? He says, no, everybody has to decide. Where do I stand on this? And he starts to tell me more about this, and I start to realize that's all that's going on on this campus. This is the main thrust of it. And I looked at him, and I said, look, if what we're talking about or what we're involved in doesn't start with, depend on, and leave us with Jesus, then what are we talking about and what are we active with? And he looked at me, and he was first angry with me because I didn't understand. And then he just, he literally did this. He goes, you're right. I think this is, you know, what we've got to remind each other of. You know, the church has become so weak in this country. And I really believe that that's the, that's the, cause, that's, that's the root cause of what, all the confusion and garbage that we see going on. You know, I'm tired of us saying, you know, with all the things that we've dealt with for the last three and a half years, and I'm tired of us saying, this is crazy. That's insane. I think we need to start calling it what it is. It's demonic. And this is our battle. We don't struggle with flesh and blood. This is our battle. And if we, the people in this room, are not dependent and truly Christ-centered by faith in Christ alone, if we in this room are not living, striving according to His power which mightily works within us, then there is, there is, no, there is no hope. And I'm not saying that everything gets turned around, but my goodness, just, just read a little bit of church history. Read about these people who dealt with, you know, the world has dealt with problems before. And you read about these Christians as they're taken to the stake. And they tell the people that are taking them, that don't bother tying my hands. I'm not going anywhere. And they don't go anywhere. And the, the government officials write accounts of, you know, these Christians die well. And, you know, I had a student come up to me one time and say, Kelly, I don't think I could do that. And I said, well, that's an interesting statement. I don't think I could either. And I don't think they could either. The only reason this ever happened is because God, who never leaves, who never forsakes, through His Son, Jesus Christ, remained faithful. Not only there could these tremendous things happen, these miraculous things happen. And we need to be careful. You know, we look at this passage, we need to be careful that now we're not depending on our good for Jesus. We're depending on Jesus for His good. Not worship ourselves like the Pharisees are doing. All right. We're over time by 50, by, by 50 seconds, so I'm going to stop. 
All right, let's pray. Paul, my brother, would you lead us in prayer, please? Amen.